Thank you. I remember when I was 11 years old and I was given a Gideon New Testament, one of those little red ones. I mentioned it before when we came into membership here. Uh, it was in the King James Version, yes, and I was from a non-Christian background and I wasn't used to reading the Bible. Uh, but I read it and I persevered. And that was where God began to first start speaking to me at 11 years old. And then I met Nora and uh, she was the one who then opened up the whole panorama for me and told me that I needed Jesus uh, to be saved. And uh, I said, why do I need to be saved? Because you're a sinner. Why am I a sinner? Yeah, this was all on the first date. Would you believe it? <laughs> and then she introduced me to the church, and it was, uh, it's been wonderful. That's, that was years and years ago. That was when I was 11. I'm 73 now, in case you're wondering. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 24. I want to start by... Just reading the last few verses of chapter 23, which Graham read last week. Just for context and to remind us. Chapter 23, verse 31. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris, which was a barracks. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him. There were 70 cavalry horsemen. While they returned to the barracks, 200 foot soldiers. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. That wasn't the common jail for common criminals. This was the governor's headquarters. And it was a little bit better, but he he was still chained. It was still a prison. He wasn't going anywhere. That's why I like that song that we sang. Uh, the verse which said, you know, you release my chains. Paul was chained, but Christ released him. Paul was chained in sin, and Christ released him. I was chained in sin, and Christ released me. It's wonderful. And if that hasn't happened to you, Christ can release you today from your sin. If you think, Well, maybe you're not a sinner because you're thinking, well, that's just murder and rape and that kind of thing. The Bible says, for all have sinned. And we'll read that later and come short of the glory of God. The Roman Empire. Everybody's heard of the Roman Empire. What an amazing empire it was. It stretched from Britain. And I think Gloucester was quite a center, wasn't it, Paul? And you include that in your in your talks, to the Middle East. 
And it was the, the Roman peace and stability, which was so important to an empire, they called it the Pax Romana, Roman peace, was maintained by Roman legions, the Roman army. During the time of the Judean revolt, when Jerusalem was destroyed, there were 28 legions, each of them having 5,500 professional soldiers who signed on for 25 years. And they had a lot of auxiliaries as well, but this was a, a huge army, and it was a powerful army, and it was a brutal army. That's how they kept the peace, one of the reasons. The, the next reason was the Roman law. Did you manage to get it, the, the first one? Oh, there we are. The Roman law was complex, like our law is today. And it was based on these four things. The privilege of citizenship, first of all, Roman citizenship. And we see that from... Uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 25. I'll just read a few verses. As they stretched him out to flog him, this was Paul, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander, the tribune, as they were called, and reported it. What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Because if that got back to Rome, they, could, they would certainly deal with the tribune for doing this. And they could burn cities to the ground. That was how they maintained the Pax Romana. They were very brutal. Secondly, presumption of innocence until guilt is proven. Well, that's the basis of our law today, isn't it? A lot of our law today is, is based on Roman law. And then the accused must face their accusers and give a defense. That's why uh, the governor, where are we? The last verse, verse 35 that I just read of chapter 23, the governor said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Because that was Roman law. He must face his accusers. And lastly, guilt must be based on evidence. And that, again, is true in, in British law as well. And we thank the Lord that there is such law. In some countries, they don't have that kind of law. All kinds of things can happen to you. You can be accused of all kinds of things, falsely but not under Roman law and not under British law. Okay, the next one, uh, Jonathan, thanks. Paul's trial before Governor Felix. This is chapter 24, verse 1. 
I'll just read the first four verses. Five days later, the high priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Sounds a bit smarmy, doesn't it? And that, that's what it was. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Usually the lawyers started out with flattery. Well, that happens today in our courts as well sometimes. I remember I used to, when I was uh, working in trading standards, I used to have to go to court a lot. We had a lot of prosecutions, certainly in the early days. And I was working in London. And I remember one of my first big cases there in the London court uh, was against a national company. And we were in court there for a week or maybe more than a week. I was in the witness box for for three days giving my evidence and then being cross-examined. But when we got there, to make sure that we won this case, the, the counsel who employed me uh, brought in a barrister uh, with a good reputation for convictions, for getting the job done. And I remember clearly he coming into the court. He was, very, he was a barrister, so he was very smartly dressed. You know, you've seen them with their striped trousers and their, and their barrister-like uh, jackets. And he had three young men coming after him carrying his legal books. And they brought, he brought them to, um, to the front of the court and, and they put the books down. And I noticed what he was using for markers in these books. I could hardly believe it. They were 50-pound notes. <laughs> that was just markers. <laughs> so he didn't lose his place. And this was, uh, this was back in the late 60s. 60, 1968, I think it was, yeah. The whole point of that was to create an impression that, you know, you, you better listen to me because I know what I'm doing because the law is complex and I know it. Um, so they started with flattery. But then he presented the charges. And the first charge was troublemaker. This is verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? Paul didn't go all over the world stirring up trouble. The second charge was ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and, and then the third charge, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, the first charge, being a troublemaker, doesn't sound too bad to us, does it, compared with murder and all sorts of other things. But in the Roman world, it was a bad charge. It was a, an important charge because... 
you don't maintain the Pax Romana, the Roman peace and stability through the empire, if you have a troublemaker, lots of troublemakers. What he was doing was disturbing the peace. That's what we would call it today, disturbing the peace. But it had to be proven. They said he was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Well, he went on to explain about his beliefs in faith. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Hardly enough time to make a lot of trouble. That's what Paul was saying in his defense. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which was the old, the first name for Christianity back in those days. Christianity. He was a follower of the, of the Christian way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Graham was speaking to us last Sunday about the importance of conscience, the importance to Paul of conscience, and to us as well. We need a clear conscience, don't we? After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So Paul here is starting his defense and he's saying, I'm not a troublemaker. And the Jews that were there at the time in the temple are not here now in court. That makes any evidence that is given, what we call today, hearsay evidence. It's not first evidence because they didn't see it and they didn't hear it, the people presenting the case. Hearsay evidence is not admissible in a court of law, either today or back then in the, in, in the Roman days. And then the way is part of Judaism. That's what Paul was saying. It's an offshoot of Judaism. You remember, I think Graham mentioned this last week, that in the Roman Empire, you couldn't set up your own organization, religious organization, your own belief. You had to be approved by Rome. And I mean, emperor worship was huge at one time. But Judaism was allowed by the Romans. So Paul was saying, yeah, I'm just a part of Judaism. And I believe what the Jews believe. The Jews were trying to say that he was starting some, some new fancy religion. So Felix adjourned 
for the tribune to be called to give evidence. Or, or that's what he said. Um, he never actually, as we read through the chap- he, chapter, he never actually called the tribune to come and give evidence. Uh, I don't think he ever had the intention of doing that. Next one, Jonathan. Paul witnessed to Felix for two years about Christianity. Verses 24 to 25, just two verses. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. What that means is Felix was petrified when he heard that there was such a thing as righteousness and that God required that righteousness and that there was such a thing as judgment to come. It petrified him, even though he was the Roman governor. He hadn't heard this before. That's enough for now. You may leave, he said. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. But We see the nature of the man when he says, verse 26, at the same time he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. I'll put a couple of verses up here on the slide. The first one's Matthew 6.33. These are the words of Jesus about righteousness. This was what the first thing Paul talked to him about. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus, the Son of God, said that. It's not David Bradford saying that. It's Jesus, the Son of God, saying that. You'd better seek the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, if you ever want to live with God in eternity, if you ever want to go to heaven after you have died and live with him, he is a righteous God, absolutely perfectly righteous. So if we want to live with him in heaven, we have to be absolutely perfectly righteous without a stain on us. Now I know and you know that Hey, that's impossible. How on earth are we going to be perfectly righteous like that? The second uh, paragraph is Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God, this is the one that Paul was talking about, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, though faith through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That that means fallen short of his glorious standard of perfection. Everybody's fallen short of that. We can't achieve it. And, And are justified, justified by his grace. Grace is undeserved merit or favor. In other words, God can forgive us even though we don't deserve it. That's grace. 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Now, this is a quotation, as I put it at the end, of the ESV, which is always supposed to be, it's good translation, it's always supposed to be you know, up to date and clear. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, even the NIV doesn't use propitiation. It uses atoning sacrifice. So that's, that's what it means. Whom God put forward as a, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ died on Calvary's tree so that we could be forgiven by grace through faith in him. With us believing in Jesus, that's our faith, trusting Jesus, then God forgives our sin because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He committed no sin. He died for us. Tonight at the communion service, we'll be thanking the Lord for that. His atoning sacrifice. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. In other words, God, people have been committing sins all the way down through history and then at one point in the, in the center of history, God sacrificed the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. Up until then, God had passed over. He, it looked as if he hadn't punished those sins, but he had in Jesus. Our personal righteousness is not enough. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ and can only have that by grace through faith. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. One of my favorite songs, which is a very old song, you may not have heard of it, it's called The Robe of Righteousness. Speaking of this righteousness, this is the, these are the words, I am covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gave me. I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me. What a joy it is to know my heavenly Father Loves me so. He gave to me my Jesus. Now when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. That's why we as Christians, if we have confessed our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked for his, his forgiveness by faith, then we are cleansed and covered what the Bible calls a robe of righteousness. Christ's righteousness, something we could never earn ourselves. And that's why God can look upon us, sinners, because we're covered with a robe of righteousness. All right, next one, Jonathan. The second thing Paul talked about to Felix was self-control. That's speaking about today's temptations. Self-control. Felix didn't have much of that. He, uh, I don't have time to go into his background. He was not a nice person. And uh, 
Drusilla, his, his wife who came with him, wasn't always his wife. It was the um, wife of somebody else. And, and he committed adultery with her. And then she divorced her husband to become Felix's third wife. So this was Felix's third attempt at a marriage. He didn't have any self-control. That's, that's the point I think that Paul was making in saying this to him. Drusilla's first, Drusilla's great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem, that we read in Matthew chapter 2. Drusilla's great-uncle was Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist, that we read of in Matthew 14. Her father... Drusilla's father was Herod Agrippa I who killed the Apostle James. There was no self-control in this family, either side. Felix's side or Drusilla's side. Yeah, why was Felix so afraid? Didn't get the full, uh, that's my fault, Jonathan, sorry. Didn't get the full text up there on that, that slide. Why was Felix so afraid? Warren Wearsby says, Felix saw the light, but he preferred to live in the darkness. That's the sort of guy that he was. Felix was well acquainted with the way, it says in verse 22. And with a Jewish wife, he must have been. And Paul had told him about the judgment to come. So Felix had no excuse, but he did not believe and procrastinated for two years, after which Emperor Nero replaced him with Governor Festus. Now Paul was on trial before Felix, but he made clear to him, Paul made clear to Felix, one day he would be on trial before a holy God. And if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, one day you will be on trial before a holy God. Billions of people in our world who have not given their lives to Christ will one day be on trial before God. A fictitious story is sometimes told about a meeting between the devil and uh, some of his senior demons to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. The first demon says, I'll go to earth and tell people there's no God. And the devil says, oh, that won't work. They know the God. They just have to look up in the sky and see the stars or, or look at the earth, the creation. They know there's a God. That couldn't possibly have evolved. The second demon said, okay, I'll go and tell them there's no heaven. The devil said, no, that won't work either because everyone knows there's life after death. It can't be just living in this world and that being the end. Surely we can't believe that. And they all want to go to heaven anyway. Who wouldn't want to go to heaven? A place of bliss and joy with no pain and no death. The third demon says, Let's tell them there's no hell. And the devil says, no, their conscience will tell them that their sins will be judged. 
We need a better lie. So demon number four says, I'll go to earth and tell everybody there's no hurry. Felix thought there was no need to hurry. Just procrastinate. There's no rush to get right with God. Just leave it until tomorrow. Not realizing that tomorrow may never come. Felix thought he could take God's word or leave it, but as we read in Acts chapter 17, God doesn't beg us to believe because he wants to fill empty places in heaven. He commands everyone everywhere to repent or bear the consequences for all eternity. That's chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's not begging people. He has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That was the point of raising Jesus from the dead. The last slide. Is there another one on there? No? Oh, sorry. People today, you can see why I don't usually use uh, PowerPoint. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> People today have even less excuse than Felix because we have the completed New Testament. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, the words of the Apostle John. The Apocalypse, they call this, or Revelation. This is what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. That means important people and unimportant people. Kings and presidents and paupers and beggars. Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So everything we think in this life and everything we say and everything we do is being recorded in heaven. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. There's no escape by being drowned or capsizing in a ship. There's no escape. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Wherever they went, death, the grave, is where the bodies go. Hades is where the spirits go when when we die. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now that sounds fair, doesn't it? What we do in this life, in this world, God will judge that according to what we've done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire, which is commonly called hell. Now, this is the last verse. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is what the Bible says. That every living person who is not a believer in Christ will one day face this great white throne judgment. We call it judgment day. But it's avoidable. It's avoidable. All we need to do is to turn to Jesus Christ by faith and believe in him. We can then avoid that. If Felix didn't repent before he died, he will face that great white throne judgment. I don't know whether he did. He may have. Those whose names not recorded in the book of life will one day stand with billions of other sinners to be condemned by the holy God who created us. Don't listen to the devil's lie. The devil says there's no hurry. Leave it until tomorrow. Think about it next week. Get a job first. Get married first. Have kids first. We can do it later. When we're older. That is a lie. There is no guarantee that there will be a tomorrow for any one of us. No guarantee that any one of us will see tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you that you are a God of love. Thank you, Lord, that you were willing to send your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus, to Calvary to die in our place. And thank you, you, you give us the opportunity to put our faith and trust in you and in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And you are willing to say, that you will punish your son, Jesus, instead of us if we put our faith in him. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray for the future. For all of those who live around us in Abbey Mead and Abbeydale who haven't heard this message. We pray for the Gideon Testaments that will be given out to the children in the schools. Lord, may they read them and may they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ too. We pray this in his name. Amen.